Welcome to Lexis, the podcast all about language and linguistics. I'm Lisa Casey. I'm Jackie Glancy. I'm Dan Clayton. And I'm Jill Lavender. So we're really pleased on this episode of Lexis to talk to Katie Brown, who is a PhD candidate who's just submitted a PhD on talking with and about the far right, putting the mainstream in mainstreaming, and that's at University of Bath. So welcome, Katie. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So on to the the first question. Well, the first two questions were essentially about kind of terms and sort of defining terms. So a lot of the work you've done is around what's called kind of discourses, I suppose, isn't it? when, when you talk about discourses and when you're using those to discuss far-right discourses, what, what do you mean? So I think that the, the term discourse is often used in a variety of different ways. And probably the most common that a lot of people would apply would be the everyday meaning. So where, where it refers to what's said, what's written about, different forms of communication. However, when studying discourse, I think it's also important to account for the power that it, it possesses and how it can influence our, stu- our understanding of the world around us. So it's not just a form of communication free from any impact, but it actually shapes how we understand different identities. It can push certain ideologies. So it's not simply a reflection of what we see. So I would regard it as a, a system of meaning that plays a crucial role in the formation and interpretation of identities and social phenomena. As I said, it's not just a reflection of the world around us, but it actually contributes to how we understand different phenomena. And therefore it plays a powerful role because if you talk about a certain topic in a particular way, then that necessitates particular responses to that topic and solutions or how people deal with that issue. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned about critical discourse there. That's that's quite an important part of what you do, isn't it? Yeah. So I I kind of have a, a combination of different methodologies that I use, and critical discourse studies is one of those core ones because it kind of uh, brings in the these elements of theory around discourse, but it also tries to apply it to real world problems and, yeah. and looking at particular social issues. Yeah, and it's I, I guess with critical discourse, I mean, we, quite a lot of A level students will have come across it in one form or another. Maybe not knowing it's necessarily called that, but you know that idea that they're looking at kind of what's behind the text, ideologies, positions, and unpicking it through language analysis. That's kind of that's a big part of it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that critical discourse analysis is particularly useful in that respect, because I think it gives you a lot of tools to to look at language and think about the the deeper meanings and the choices of words, the, the impact that that has on our understanding of a particular topic. Yeah. OK, great. And then in terms of the sort of political definitions, I suppose you you, you talk about things like the mainstream you're talking about the far right but how how do you kind of categorize those it's I know it's a bit of a tricky one to kind of put your finger on but you know how would you you know classify those what 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 do those kind of mean to you yeah so um this is obviously quite a big part of my of my thesis is talking about these issues because I think they are really important. And so one of the aspects that I think is really important to emphasise in terms of discourse is this idea of contingency. So that means that an identity might seem stable uh, and fixed, 
but it doesn't necessarily have to stay that way. So if I start with the mainstream, often people will have an understanding of what they think is mainstream according to different topics. So it could be politics, mainstream politics, mainstream parties. People might have an idea of that. Also in music, people think about mainstream music mm -hmm. and will come up with certain musicians. Because I, yeah, I was actually teaching students and trying to get them to think about this idea of the mainstream as a contingent identity, not something that's fixed in terms of politics. But we were looking at it through music and I asked them who they would uh, say was a mainstream musician. And they said Ed Sheeran, Taylor Swift, people like that. Yeah. And then I said, well, I asked my dad the same question. <laughs> and he said straight away without hesitation, ABBA. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I was trying to get at with that is how what was mainstream perhaps in the 1970s would not be considered mainstream mm. now. And the same can apply in a political situation as well. Mm. So what we understand as mainstream at the moment might not be in a few years time, and it certainly wasn't in the past. So what we've seen with far right discourse, for instance, is how it can move into the mainstream or it can move out of the mainstream as well. But this idea that the mainstream is actually something that's fluid, that's changing, yeah. means that we can start to analyze it more closely because we can start to understand how different ideas have come to be considered normal. And so when I'm talking about the far right in general, so I try to provide a kind of minimal definition of the far right where you need to add further nuance according to the context that you're talking about. But as a general baseline, I would argue that it's a position that's characterized by a general commitment to inequality and mm. drawing on Aurelien Mondon and Aaron Winter that racism is at its core and that this can be accompanied by a broader so-called politics of fear, as Ruth Wodak states, which can encompass various forms of exclusion targeting different marginalized groups yeah. so that's kind of a baseline definition and then when I'm looking at the mainstream and the far right and the interactions between them I'm interested in how far right discourses can be expressed by so-called mainstream actors and just sort of looping back around slightly to the to definitions yeah. In terms of things like kind of, you know, traditional notions of sort of left and right might have, I, I don't know, I mean, I've heard sort of people discuss the sort of idea that they're, they're not quite as fixed as they used to be. You know, a lot of A-level students will look at kind of newspapers, for example, in the UK, and it, it's not quite as easy to kind of place them on the left and right as it might have been in the past. Or, you know, Labour and the Tories, Lib Dems, you know, placing where they are on the political spectrum, left and right don't necessarily apply as well maybe as obviously as I used to maybe, maybe that's a sort of contested point anyway but you know how would you, how would you kind of define left and right when we're talking about politics there yeah I think they're a useful starting point and there's there's a lot of different sort of levels of nuance that you can go into but I think taking Noberto Bobbio's definition as a starting point which summarizes the kind of fundamental distinction between them where on the left it's generally, as a good quote, people who believe that human beings are more equal than unequal. And then on the right, and again, quote, people who believe that we are more unequal than equal. And I think if you use that as a baseline, then you can also 
look at different parties in the UK mm-hmm. and assess their policies according to those core foundational premises? Are they actually fighting for equality or is it to further entrench inequality? And I think we also need to be wary as well because there's sometimes a claim within politics that a party's trying to be neither left nor right or they're being objective, neutral. And that's quite often associated with the mainstream as well, this sort of moderate centre ground. But that actually, if we look closer at the policies, at the discourse, then that can actually serve to further entrench inequalities itself. So, Katie, if we could maybe turn to some of the particular linguistic dimensions of, of this, how important would you say different aspects of language, such as particular narratives or metaphors, would be in presenting extreme ideologies to quite a receptive audience? Yeah, I think it's it's a really important feature. And it's actually what I try to look at a lot in my PhD. So I separate it when it comes to the far right and the mainstream into what I call talking with and talking about the far right. Mm. So talking with refers to shared discourses between the mainstream and far right. So that's encompassing any similarities between them. And that might come down to the content, the topics that are spoken about, or the style, the metaphors that are used to describe certain topics. And then I also discuss talking about, um, and that's the way that mainstream actors may refer to the far right or discursively construct it. So whether they try to draw closer in certain instances, separate themselves in others. So going to talking with and a potential example of that. My work has looked at the Brexit campaign in particular. Um, So I look at both mainstream remain and mainstream leave. And there's a particular instance where Dominic Raab, so he was for a part of Vote Leave, the mainstream leave campaign. He compared defenders of EU free movement, the most stubborn opponents of gun control. That's the 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 quote there. And if you think about that simile, because he, he expresses it as a simile, the equivalent of guns in the simile are actually people moving to the UK. So there's quite a violent or there is a very violent idea behind the simile that's used. And Mm -hmm. that's just one example of many. And one of the points that I try to make is that this is the the vote leave campaign. They remained largely separate from the UKIP endorsed campaigns, the campaigns that were endorsed by UKIP largely, not fully, but in general. And so We need to think about the role of so-called mainstream actors in actually normalizing these ideas. These quotes, this this one from Rob that I am mentioning, that wouldn't seem out of place if it were expressed by Nigel Farage, for instance. So one of the focuses of my work is to actually look at the role of mainstream politicians, because our attention can often be drawn to the far right itself. And I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't look at the far right it's obviously a really important topic and something that we need to combat but we also need to pay attention to the role of mainstream actors because they often have a lot of power in these scenarios to influence how we interpret them so that was just one example of a simile that was used and it's replicated Mm -hmm. in, in numerous other examples particularly around immigration and there's some interesting work by Charlotte Taylor on the types of metaphors that are used to describe 
immigration. And then just to return again to talking about this time, the way that we also frame the far right itself can influence how we perceive the far right identity as well. So some of the work that I've done with Aurelia Monzon, we've been looking at the use of the term populism and how as a term, it can actually euphemize far right politics to some extent, because populism can sometimes be associated with the idea of the people because it sounds like it sounds like popular as well. Mm-hmm. So even though it's often used in a negative sense, it can all it can sometimes seem preferable mm-hmm. to far right actors to be described as populist because they can self-define therefore as representative of the people, yeah. as opposed to more accurately referring to them as far right, as racist. So actually the terms that we use to describe the far right or talking about are also important in normalising these kinds of ideas. To look at the some of the language used by mainstream actors who maybe are seeking to appeal to, to the far right, have you studied words and phrases that act as particular dog whistles, for example, so that they can keep up this you know, apparent respectability whilst actually sending out very, very clear signals to a much more dangerous extreme group of people. Yeah, I think that's a a really interesting point as well. So often mainstream actors might use more coded ways of saying particular ideas. That's certainly been a feature and, and it's something that I tried to look at in my analysis as well, how there were these links between ideas, but perhaps the way that they were expressed was a little less explicit to some extent but actually i i think that there there's almost been as ruth wodak calls it this shameless normalization of far-right ideas because we're seeing more and more examples where it's it's not coded it's it's very explicit to draw on a recent example from uk politics when home secretary suella braverman referred to uh, refugees as, as an in invasion this is very very explicit there's it's not a dog whistle it's very very clear and I think that's one of the factors around normalization that's interesting is that these ideas could start to seep in in certain respects but then they can also be emboldened and that can also embolden far-right groups as well because they're seeing their ideas or ideas that they often express at the heart of mainstream discourse. Mm. Yeah, and I guess with a lot of this, you know, clearly we're focusing on here discussing the language of this, but it's not much of a leap, as we've seen recently, from language into dangerous rhetoric into acts of violence, you know. So it was less than a week ago where someone went and firebombed a migrant processing centre in Dover. And, you know, the investigation seems to show a lot of links to far-right rhetoric. It's on the back of Suella Braverman talking about an invasion. It's, you know, there's a a lot of that language has real-world consequences for action, doesn't it? So it's Mm -hmm. not like these are just... You know, as somebody put it on Twitter, hurty words, let's all get over it. It's it's more dangerous, isn't it? Yeah, and that speaks to the point about discourse earlier, about the power that it, it can hold. And yeah. so that's why it's essential that we start to unpick these things that we that we do call it out, because yeah, they can have a real impact in, in so many ways. Yeah. 
when we when we kind of think about some of the terms or some of the kind of ideas that have crossed over into the mainstream or been used in the mainstream, what what about things like say the use of globalist? Because there was you know recently Nigel Farage used that and was criticised saying you know this lots of people said you know globalist is a coded word for Jewish essentially, and his reply was. No, look at the dictionary definition here. The dictionary definition of globalist has got nothing, doesn't mention mm-hmm. Jewish people at all. How dare you accuse me of anti-Semitism? But for a lot of people, globalist has got those connotations, doesn't it? Yeah, and so I think that sort of speaks to the point earlier about dog whistle politics as well and how there can be an attempt to not necessarily say something so directly that it will be called out immediately but at the same time, it speaks to those ideas very clearly. And I, there's been, there are so many examples recently of instances like that. So when when I was writing up my thesis in the introduction of it, I, I draw on some recent examples of the normalization of, of far right discourse. And as I was working on my thesis and redrafting it for quite a while because it (laughs) took a little time it was it was really striking how I kept needing to update those references and there were so many to add it wasn't you know that say there'd be a few weeks between that draft and then when I was working on it again there'd be another one to add and so it really struck me how how these normalization processes are happening so rapidly at the moment just something that popped into my head when I was looking at some of this and I don't know whether this is way off offline but when we were talking about the word mainstream and or the idea of mainstream and music earlier on when we were chatting embedded in that idea particularly with mainstream music and young people is this horror isn't there <laughs> that you know oh it's, it's so mainstream it's dull it's predictable mm-hmm. I, I do not want my life to be led like that I need to make more of an impact I need to have more power and agency and interest in my life but I wondered in a sort of darker much darker way whether individuals respond with horror to mainstream politics in the same way and that especially in a world where they're increasingly disenfranchised that they are moving towards or perceiving the move away from mainstream as being cool, as being, I don't know, somewhere somehow making their mark, in which case that's really terrifying. I, I, think, that's, I think that's, a, that's a, a really interesting point because, yeah, when, when we often talk about the mainstream, it's not necessarily, at least if it's used as, a, as an actual adjective itself, it's mm. obviously quite one that's not something that people would necessarily aspire to, as you yeah, put it out sure. with with the mainstream music. But I also think that even if it's not used positively in a lot of ways, then it's still associated often with this kind of run of the mill, safe, safe pair of hands, moderate. So even if mm. it's considered boring, it's it's still considered the the most moderate way and the the best way to to proceed. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I try to look at by questioning the category of mainstream itself is actually that in in a number of instances, the mainstream hasn't acted as a bulwark against the far right. It's actually Mm -hmm. brought it closer Mm -hmm. to being part of the mainstream too. There's lots of like mainstream into mainstream. But that actually that idea of it being safe and boring 
it can lead people towards to be attracted to to far right parties, for instance. But it also means that we've not really engaged with its role and its crucial role in normalizing mm-hmm. far right discourses because we assume that it's just it's the mainstream, it's standard, it's safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess what I mean, one of the things that sort of struck me about your music comparison as well was that whole idea of the sort of marketing of the alt right back in sort of 2015, 16 was very much almost like they were some hip new genre of music and they saw themselves as outside the mainstream, edgy, you know, mm-hmm. and transgressive. And they often kind of tried to present that image of themselves as being kind of radical, even though their politics were actually you know, same old kind of fascist nonsense that's been around for a long time. But it was it was very much a kind of image that was being presented, wasn't it, around that? Yeah, yeah. I think often we we talk about developments in social media, online communities, which are of course new in, in a lot of respects, but we also need to think about the continuities between them. And this idea around them being new can also detract attention from those consistencies across time so we need to pay attention to that yeah yeah and just thinking again about the sort of linguistic dimension so in one of your papers you talk about what you describe as a discursive shift that's taking place could you say a little bit more about that what how that kind of works so yeah discursive shifts relate again to that idea of contingency where sometimes we have this idea of what's the norm and topics or framing might move into or out of the norm. So one of the ideas within politics that illustrates how discursive shifts can happen is that universal suffrage in the UK, for instance, would not have been considered a mainstream idea at the turn of the 20th century, whereas now it would be at least unusual for a party to actually campaign uh, against that. So how certain ideas that might seem completely out of the question at a particular point in time can actually move into what is the norm or what is mainstream. And so when we look at discursive shifts, it's about how those ideas might slowly, or it could be kind of a, a quick movement into what is accepted and what is normal. Yeah, I guess we've seen that fairly recently with stuff like Roe v. Wade being overturned in the US. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You've told us a little bit about critical discourse, Katie, but I'm quite interested to think, you know, if A-level students are listening to this and thinking about how you approach data, for example, what kind of methodologies would you use with that? Do you pick out particular examples? Do you have a kind of corpus or, you know, what? how would you... How do you go about it? So I use a combined approach to discourse analysis using discourse theory, critical discourse studies and corpus linguistics. And so the corpus linguistic element deals with more computerized techniques. And for that, I use a a large corpus that I collect for my data. And then from there, I take a sample and I analyze it manually myself using discourse theory and critical discourse studies to shape mm-hmm. shape my analysis. So if I take the example from my thesis, I gathered 
any article on the websites of the different campaigns during the campaigning period. So it was announced on the 20th of February 2016. And it's and I stopped at the 23rd of June when when the vote was. And so I collected all of that data. And then I did a sorting technique where I put it into the corpus identified a sample and then discarded completely if it wasn't relevant. So that's how I go about it. And then I usually move between both computerized and manual analysis because I think sometimes you will be reading a particular text mm. and then you can be like, oh, maybe that would apply more broadly to the entire corpus or, oh, maybe this is just this particular speaker is framing mm -hmm. it in this way so by using that combined approach you can kind of identify patterns or specificities so I think that I found it useful because it helps me to to look on the broader scale but also mm -hmm. focus in on key ideas yeah and I imagine that gives you a really good balance of frequency of occurrence and but not losing the individual individual context, as you say, that particular users might might imbue it with, or or particular contexts historically where it might have been shaped in a certain way. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because one of the things that I think is really useful in corpus linguistic techniques is so say I was reading an article that mentions immigration, and then I decide, okay, I actually want to look at how that term is constructed across the whole corpus and mm. using concordance analysis I can look at how in every single instance that it's occurred immigration has been portrayed mm -hmm. so looking at words that it comes up with and so you can create kind of a visual understanding of immigration both within that specific text but also across the corpus yeah that's, yeah it's great great technique to spray level students isn't it as well because I think there's that mm -hmm. That ability to get that bigger picture and then as you say go into text and find the context and I guess when, when you go into the, the you know the texts themselves there's a bit more sense of kind of interpretation about kind of what sort of roles actors the critical discourse kind of nuts and bolts I suppose is there then yeah absolutely and I think one of the important things that that I regard in my work is is the transparency around it because I kind of report exactly what I've done and that's not to say that everybody would read that text and find exactly the same metaphor that I found mm -hmm. that I think is interesting but at least that they could do the, the same and see what their interpretation would be yeah. and I think that the the in-depth manual analysis is really key because it's obviously really helpful to have that broad overview but I think if we if we don't go into it in more depth then we can also miss out on some of the important nuances as well and I guess mm -hmm. that transparency is, is is interesting as well because I mean you know this is this is ideological, isn't it? You know, you can't, there's no, there's no getting out of it that analysing this using these kind of techniques involves ideological positions and our own, your own ideological position in relation to the subject matter. But it's a degree of honesty about where you're coming from on this, isn't there? Where you're saying, well, here are my techniques. I see it in this way. Here, here's how I get to that conclusion. But if you approach it from a different position, you might see it differently. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, so that's one of the key parts of my philosophy and methodological approach is that I'm not going in pursuit of an objective approach to my analysis. I'm coming at this from a political position of opposition 
to far right and its normalization and I'm not going to shy away from that and so I think there can sometimes be that attempt to appease this idea that we should be these neutral observers but when it comes to matters of racism sexism homophobia etc that for me there is no neutral position to take so my research is part of my philosophy to combat those ideas yeah, I was I was just going to come on to that, actually, because I've read you saying that, yes, we have to understand mainstreaming and so on. But in that understanding, we are never euphemizing it or excusing it, but only ever combating it, which is, you know, what you've just been saying really clearly. So if we if we do want to challenge it, if people listening to this you know, want to resist this normalisation and this general fascist creep? You know, what do we do? How do we respond from a linguistic perspective? What can we do to challenge these ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's such a good question and I wish I had the <laughs> answer for it. But I think the bottom line for me is being unequivocal in our rejection of it, not being afraid to stand, stand up to it. So that there's quite often this idea that the mainstream need to appease the far right by shifting right on immigration, for instance, especially on the left, as we've seen with the approach of the the Labour Party over various generations and, and fairly recently through Keir Starmer too. And so I think we just need to challenge that idea that 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 we need this watered down far right to to oppose it, but instead instead standing firm and principled opposition to it through our own discourses and through the language that we use too. I think I think looking into those kinds of those kinds of ideas and and analyzing them is is one of the first steps because we're starting mm-hmm. to question the the idea that these are sort of common sense this is that mm-hmm. this is the way that it has to be. Mm-hmm. So I think starting to look critically when we analyze texts is so important in that. Just that term common sense, that's an amazing one, isn't it? (laughs) An amazing one. You know, you've got, it's like a tennis ball that people are batting around. Yeah, and I think that's, that would be a really interesting term in itself to to look at the construction of using corpus linguistic techniques. Mm. I was actually reading a a paper by a, a colleague, George Newth, and he's been looking at Salvini's use of the term common sense in in Italy and so doing precisely that and actually looking at how that links to the construction of the mainstream and and sort of mm-hmm. shifting to what should be the norm is is common sense so the way that common sense itself can be constructed to actually normalize inequalities and exclusionary politics so yeah i think that's such a, mm. a fascinating case study yeah. That would be a brilliant investigation for English language A-level right there. Right. So, Katie, what's your favourite book about language? I think I've got two, if that's OK. So I think as an overview of different forms of discourse analysis, Marianne Jorgensen and Louise Phillips' book, Discourse Analysis as Theory and Method, was a really big one for me because I think they they managed to discuss really complex ideas in a way that was accessible to me when I was first starting out learning about discourse analysis. So I feel like that was like this book that just was like, oh, wow, <laughs> I get it. Yeah. So that one's really useful. And then I also wanted to mention one in my own field, which is The Politics of Fear, The Shameless Normalization of Far-Right Discourse by Ruth Wodak, mm-hmm. because that offers some really fascinating insights 
into the process of normalization. Ah, you've got it there. <laughs> okay, on to the second quick question. What's your favorite linguistic fact or idea, Katie? I think it has to be the idea of radical contingency in discourse, whereby things aren't necessarily fixed, because I think it can help you to unpick different ideas around what is, going back to that word, common sense, and also think about the power dynamics of presenting topics in particular ways. But I think it also, and this is one of the reasons I think it's the one that I like the most is that it leaves some space for hope too that we can challenge these processes and it doesn't actually have to be the way that it is so contingency helps you analyze but it also leaves leaves some space for hope yay that's what we need <laughs> and then finally what one bit of advice would you give a budding linguist i think my piece of advice would be to pursue something that you're passionate about and think about the way that language is important in in constructing it and the norms that surround it because I think there's so many different avenues that you can go down so many fascinating things to explore that language plays a key role in especially when we think about power too so whatever your passion is then I think follow that oh that's brilliant In this language news, we're going to be having a look at representation of migration and immigration. And this kind of stems this time round from some statements that the current Home Secretary, Suelo Braverman, made about the small boats crossing the channel. And she described these as, and I quote from a Daily Mirror article about this, she said, let's be clear about what is really going on here. The British people deserve to know which party is serious about stopping the invasion on our southern coast and which party is not. And there was a lot of discussion around her choice of the noun invasion. And we've got lots of different links to stories and papers and research on this. And one of the first responses that I think was really interesting came from the Guardian journalist and writer David Shariat Madari. So, Jackie, what was he saying about that? Yeah, so this is, I mean, he's, he's written about this topic and before, and I think he provided a link to a piece that he wrote in 2015, which also suggests that this, you know, this is a this is a tactic that's been tried before. But I think what, what he was focusing on in particular is just this idea of invasion being a misrepresentation and how, I think what he says is, it is a word with the ability to create its own social reality, a reality where people believe they are at risk of harm and demand policies that respond to that. And I thought that, that was a that's a, a really interesting idea of kind of constructing a world in which you feel as though or people are encouraged to feel as though they are at risk and then demand some kind of response or take action um, themselves. That's something Dami, that that you noticed in terms of how language can kind of incite violent reactions. Yeah, and it's something we we talk about in the interview with Katie Brown as well, isn't it? The idea that it's not just, this isn't just kind of words and words kind of being unpleasant and nasty and sort of triggering. It's actually that the words themselves create 
kind of like you were saying, create a kind of reality and incite people into acts of violence. So there was, soon after Suella Braveman had made these comments about invasion, there was an actual firebomb attack on a migrant processing centre near Dover. It doesn't take much of a leap to kind of see words leading to the sort of conditions to make somebody feel that they are at war. And I think that's part of the problem with the term invasion and why it was picked up and criticised, this sort of idea that it immediately brings to mind a kind of state of conflict, doesn't it? A state of, of warfare. And if you're putting people on a kind of war footing, you shouldn't really be surprised when some people kind of take up arms and see themselves as soldiers, even if they're just kind of, you know, far right cranks. And the, re- the really useful part of having linguists look at this is that it is, of course, part of a much larger back catalogue of work mm. about discourses of this type. Immigration and migration is, is a particular version of it, but it links really closely. And we've got some really nice links in the show notes to the research that talks about it. It links really closely to broader sociopolitical discourses about particular social groups. Hamzin Parnell from Nottingham University has a really nice paper on the representation of migrant identities in Brexit-related government discourses. There's some really nice quotes that that we've pulled out for students to have a look at that would be brilliant if they wanted to do an NEA, for example, on looking at looking at migrant discourses. They talk, she talks about how the idea of immigration as negative is a really common strategy in immigration discourse to other a very particular group of people. Mm. Although ironically, the group is actually really disparate and is not homogenous. It actually represents loads of different sorts of people from loads of different sorts of situations, but clusters them together as this sort of faceless other that can then be demonized for the purposes of whoever is giving that speech in that particular moment. And I think we talked about this with Cameron Khan as well when we were talking yeah. about kind of the othering of racial groups in the UK. So definitely part of a, of a much broader uh, and again broadly right-wing kind of socio-political strategy of demonizing really particular social groups for the good of, you know, a, a right-wing political decision or push. Yeah. And I mean, it's 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 cross party as well, isn't it? Because I mean, there's, you know, there were the Labour Party back in the like 2000s talked about immigration as swamping the country. You had mm-hmm. Thatcher back in the late 70s talking about that as well. So it's, I mean, it goes across, across sort of political party boundaries, but it's generally a kind of a right wing angle, isn't it? And a lot of the kind of metaphors tend to be around, you know, as you say, othering but also metaphors around disaster, pollution, impurity, the mm-hmm. you know, war and conflict. So the invasion one fits in with that. Disease and infection. Again, it's if you trace it back, going way back, you know, well, way back to the 1930s, there's a number of headlines from newspapers around then, including the Daily Mail, which talked in very dehumanising terms about Jews fleeing mainland Europe and seeking asylum refuge in the UK. Yeah, so Daily Mail 1938 story had the headline, German Jews pouring into this country. And that brings up a link to a paper by Charlotte Taylor, who's a linguist at Sussex University, about the use of kind of water metaphors, so conceptual metaphors around water. So flow, tide ways those kind of terms being used mm. to describe migration and of course again those bring to mind threat bring to mind sort of inundation again sort of swamping and things like that so that all of those constructions create migration as as a threat and it's that sort of construction of the different sides isn't it is it, you know the the othering and the dehumanizing but also they're kind of treating as a 
as a block migrants and then who yeah. who who's the us who's the us exactly so there's sort of a pre a presupposition there of the the we of the readers of the article that has been really carefully constructed around a, a shared notion of it's us against them and that's entirely constructed by the language and doesn't really exist in any in any you know tangible real life sense what i found really interesting about charlotte taylor's paper was that she found that that some of those metaphors, like like the the kind of one about liquid, she found that they persisted throughout the two hundred year time period that she'd kind of looked back and, and drawn a data from. And I think that that's quite incredible, isn't it? It shows how kind of entrenched these yeah. metaphors are in in the way that we use language, so that we probably have got to think very hard when we when when we hear metaphorical language and and kind of question ourselves and question what we're listening to. To, to to unpick where where they may not be reflecting reality. Mm. And I think it was Phil Sargent in our interview mm. with him about kind of political discourses that talked about how deliberately they are often chosen and then wielded and weaponized deliberately and systematically, not not unthinkingly, but actually very, very deliberately for for particular political gain. Yeah, and I think we have, haven't we got another link that talks about how Braverman was cautioned against using the language that she, but then, you know, went ahead and chose to use it anyway. So that does suggest that it's, you know, it's a, it's a very calculated move for, for whatever political reason. Well, I guess it's the idea, isn't it, that migration is going to be something that's going to appeal to a certain kind of political base, isn't it? As as like a, a kind of policy direction that's going to going to garner them support. But what's kind of interesting as well is when you look at how migration attitudes are different in the UK mm. now than they were, say, even just 10 years ago. Lots mm. of surveys suggest that people are actually much more welcoming of migration now. And there's a huge generational difference. There was a, there was something yesterday showing that only 1% of the younger group polled, and I think this was like 16 to 25s or something like that, only 1% had no sympathy whatsoever for people crossing the English Channel on small boats, whereas that was into the sort of 30s or 40% for the over 65. So there's clearly a huge generational difference there. It's kind of an interesting one to kind of look at in terms of how all of that's framed, as you say, the sort of framing of these things into a narrative is very much a kind of language issue on a sort of big scale, isn't it? And I think there's there's been some interesting stuff done by different people about this, around ideas of how narratives can be countered, how they can, alternative narratives can be set up. I think we talked about this when we interviewed Kate Barber and certainly in the interview with Katie Brown in this episode, there's some interesting stuff about, you know, what what kind of works for counter narratives. And there's a think tank called Class who put together some research they've done with focus groups about ways in which narratives around race and class and even around kind of wokeness, which I think we, again, we talked about on another episode. We talked about it several episodes, you know, how how those could be countered and alternative narratives might be set up to push a more progressive kind of viewpoint on these things. Yeah, so for listeners who aren't aware, CLASS stands for the Centre for Labour and Social Studies. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes as well to to the paper that Dan's just talking about there. Yeah, so one, one such example comes from the organisation Freedom From Torture, and they've put together a document called Changing the Conversation on Asylum, a Messaging Guide, And there's a nice kind of summary there, which has got some really good language stuff in it about how they've analysed different kind of representations of asylum, but also 
puts forward this kind of more positive message about how you can lead your conversation with a shared value, explain what and who is getting in the way of that value being realized, and then assert a proactive solution. And they put together some sort of messaging principles behind that. It's an interesting way of kind of changing the narrative, I suppose, and uh, you know, giving a few sort of pointers as to as to what you should or shouldn't say in situations like that to kind of put forward a, a different kind of agenda. 